Hello and welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly dose of rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Meeple Lady gains influence and power in Gugong, Christy gears up at the Magic Maze shopping mall, I battle Klingons and Romulans in Star Trek Panic, and Catherine takes the plunge to build underwater cities. But first, Mason enters the fray in Fight for Olympus. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Fight for Olympus. I'm not a CCG player, and never really have been. In the early mid-90s, a family friend gave me a Magic the Gathering deck, and I played it a few times in high school, but I quickly realized that I could never possibly win without spending actual money. I obviously didn't have any money, especially to spend on a card game, so I threw that deck in a drawer and just forgot about it. I've since played a few of the non-collectible living card games in the last several years, and while I really enjoyed a couple of them, I still can't help feel that they're probably best experienced if you're interested in building a bunch of decks and relentlessly tuning them for competitive play. I have less than zero interest in doing that, so when I play something like the Game of Thrones LCG, which I do really enjoy, I'm just using a couple of the basic sets, just enough to build out some preconstructed decks and treat it like a game in a box. I still really like the interaction, card play, and hand management of collectible style card games though, so I'm always intrigued by a game that does a little bit of that without me having to make a big commitment up front. Matthias Kramer's Fight for Olympus, published by Lookout Spiel in 2016, sits in an interesting nether space that isn't quite a two-player strategy game, but isn't quite a CCG either. It has some conceptual threads tied to San Juan Race for the Galaxy, both of which I adore, but it's a direct area conflict control game with multiple paths to tactical victory. Well, okay, Mason, what does that actually mean? Well, in Fight for Olympus, you and your opponent are battling for control of three separate areas of a long rectangular board. Each side has space for six cards that are in direct opposition to one another. You're both drawing from a central deck, and on your turn, you're playing character cards to your spaces on your side of the board, and then paying for them by discarding other cards out of your hand. This is, without a question, a text-on-cards game, which I think can be daunting, but Fight for Olympus is simple enough that you don't need to memorize a bunch of keywords or factions or terms. At the end of the turn, each of the characters you played on your side of the board attack either your opponent's character directly across from them, or the location on the board itself if they haven't played someone there. You're rewarded by either damaging your opponent's character or taking the benefit of the space that you're on. So I realize that sounds extremely very much like something that Megan and I would both thoroughly hate. And on principle, we probably should, but there's something about this little game that we both just love. And I think for the most part, it's the pure tactical decision making that we both enjoy, as well as the fact that there's essentially no memory element. Usually, to be very good at any of the popular direct conflict card games with built decks, you really need to know what's in the deck to make the most of it, and neither of us are capable of remembering that information. So the central draw deck in Olympus evens the playing field by letting the players worry about what's in their hand right then and what's on the board in front of them, not what they need to draw or hold because of how their deck is built. Fight for Olympus is, obviously, about Greek gods and goddesses, with some no-name human soldiers and other folks from the Greek mythological canon thrown in. Most of the characters in the 96-card deck are unique, though some of them have similar powers. Unlike San Juan or Race from the Galaxy, Fight for Olympus forces you to pay for new cards with specific colors of other cards, making for some really tough decisions every turn. It's very easy to run into card scarcity at mid-game, and if you find yourself very short on cards for long periods of time, you may have already lost. There are multiple paths to victory, which other Eurogamers may enjoy, and it allows for a breadth of playstyle that some other battle games don't. You can win by running the point tracker all the way to your side, basically direct attack area control. You can overwhelm your opponent by fully populating your side of the board with heavy defenses, or you can just outlast by running the deck out with the points tracker in your favor. Because you're drawing blind from the communal card pool and making turn-by-turn tactical decisions, you can shift strategy mid-game without being horribly penalized by a purpose-built deck. 
Fight for Olympus is not without its problems or detractors. There are a lot of rules questions on BGG, and while Kramer and Lookout have answered most of them, they really do all need to be listed in a centralized FAQ. Additionally, there is a serious misprint in my copy that was supposedly fixed in later printings, but I really can't figure out how to tell which version is which. I'll link to the thread on the misprint in the show notes for this episode. It's not just a small typo either, it's the attack and defense value of two cards being so totally wrong that I just took them out of my copy. We've also added a house rule that lets you mulligan your opening hand, because it's honestly not very much fun to not be able to afford any of the cards you're holding on your first turn. There's some other house rules on BGG, like changing the draw deck to a card market, but we haven't tried it because the blind draw is part of what I like so much about Fight for Olympus. Other than the misprint, the cards and components are great, as you would expect from any Lookout Games title. And of course, the game fits neatly on the shelf with all of our other small box two-player titles. The art is fine, but not particularly interesting, though the graphic design is very, very good. Personally, I'm pretty blah on the theme, but maybe if you were heavily into Greek mythology, you might get a kick out of the card powers that correspond meaningfully to their character. But I don't really remember enough about Greek mythology to say one way or the other. I play Olympus as a total abstract, and as usual, would prefer it if it were about pets, or plants, or plants who have pets. So, who should not try Fight for Olympus? Serious Magic and other hardcore card gamers may not enjoy this. Players who view themselves as long-game, high-level strategists may not enjoy this. Heavy Euroheads who hate randomness may not enjoy this. Conflict-averse players who are made uncomfortable by direct attacks and a zero-sum outcome may not enjoy this. And non-two-player households may not enjoy this, as I think it greatly benefits from multiple plays against the same opponent to really shine. I give Fight for Olympus 5 out of 5 board game Sisyphuses, endlessly bringing their favorite Matthias Kramer games to a meetup, only to have the person that can't stand convince everyone else to play Cards Against Humanity. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Discount Compost. I'm constantly on the lookout for weighty five-player games that keep everyone engaged, and even though I know Battlestar Galactica always fills that void, not everyone always wants to play it. Shocking, I know. Recently, one substantial five-player game that stood out in my mind is Gugong. Released in 2018, Gugong is designed by Andrea Stedding and published by Game Brewer. Stedding also designed Hansa Teutonica, another game that I adore, and I see some elements of that game here in Gugong. Gugong is a 1-5 player game set in 1570 China during the Ming Dynasty. The game is played out over four identical rounds and plays in about 60-90 to 90 minutes. In Gugong, the emperor is working hard to ban corruption within the country, and the highest officials of the Forbidden City would pretend to uphold that ban on corruption by accepting gifts from petitioners instead and returning a gift of a seemingly lower value. Each person receives a small player board and a starting hand of four cards, while the entire game is played out over this gorgeous board that represents areas of the Forbidden City and its surroundings. There are basically seven action locations on the spot which can be activated during the person's turn. At the start of the round, the destiny dice are rolled and you get a certain number of servant cubes available in your servant pool. Each player has a general pool and a servant pool, and you cannot mix up the two. This is a mechanism similar to Hansa Teutonica, where you have to manage your available cubes while taking your actions. On a player's turn, you spend one of your actions cards in your hand to activate a location spot with a card that's higher in value than what's sitting there. Thematically, you're trading up gifts. You then take the old card that was sitting on the board and place it into your discard pile on your player board. These cards that you pick up into your discard pile will then become your hand for the next round. Depending on the location, 
You can also spend servant cubes to amplify that action you just activated. You can travel across China, picking up travel tokens, which will give you bonuses. You can help build the Great Wall, which will give you victory points and the option to spend intrigue benefits when the section of the wall is complete. You can also go up the intrigue track, which can offer you to be first player, but it mostly so you can rack up points you can spend in conjunction with when the section of the wall triggers. You can also collect jade, which gets more expensive as jade is depleted on the board, but collecting them will give you victory points at the end of the game. You can also place servants to get decrees, which will give you immediate bonuses, bonuses during certain phases of the round, or end game victory points. Players can also travel down the Grand Canal, which will give you benefits if your boat is full and you reach a harbor with a reward. Rewards include four victory points, drawing another gift card, which means one more action during a round, or unlocking your double servant, which counts as two servants, but counts as one pickup from your general pool when adding to your servant pool. Lastly, you can move your envoy up the Palace of Heavenly Purity. This track doesn't give you any bonuses until you reach the top, but if your envoy doesn't get there by the end of the game, you're out of luck and basically eliminated from getting the chance to win the game. Some cards have symbols on the bottom half of it, which also gives you bonuses or enables you to activate a different location. When you place a card of a higher value than what's sitting at a location, you can trigger the symbol on the card first before activating the location you're sitting at. Also, if you're unable or unwilling to place a card of a higher value on a location, you can burn cards or spend extra servants to activate the location instead. But servants are in very short supply, and you receive fewer each round as the game progresses. At the end of the round, players look at the cards in their discard pile, and if any numbers match those of the destiny dice, which are rolled at the start of the round, they get extra servants from their general pool to use for the next round, as well as VPs if they match the most numbers. Lastly, I adore the different shaped meeples in this game which sit on different action spots across the board. You have the Lotus Flower, which tracks your VPs, a Traveler Meeple on a horse, an Envoy, you know, whose sole job is to go up the Palace of Heavenly Purity track, and the Intrigue Marker, which kind of looks like an Egg Meeple, which I think are supposed to be shaped like the Jade Markers. And lastly, you get Cardboard Boats and Workers, which are represented by Standard Cubes. The game is combo-tastic, and it's really satisfying what you can accomplish from placing a strategic single card at one location. The game also manages to keep everyone engaged because everyone is waiting to see which locations will get activated and what card they're up against. I forgot to mention that the cards of one value will knock out a card of a nine value, thus cycling through which cards can be used at a particular spot again. Gugong is rich with hand management and worker management, set collection, and worker placement. The components are fantastic in the base game though I would totally buy some green stones to upgrade the jade chits. And the game scales for all players. It has a two-sided board depending on how many people are playing, as well as rules for a solo variant. And that's Gugong! This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, and you can find me on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening! Bye! For the past several years, I've admired real-time games as an area of innovation in board gaming. Games such as Escape, The Curse of the Temple, XCOM, and 5-Minute Dungeon create this intense atmosphere at the table. You start to feel the adrenaline as you become totally engrossed in the game. For the introverts and the highly sensitive among us, some of these games can be a little overstimulating. 
with soundtracks and a feeling of being rushed. Magic Maze is a cooperative real-time game that is played mostly silently, giving players the opportunity to focus in a timed but quiet environment. Together, players work to move four fantasy characters through a mall environment, flipping up tiles as you go. Each character needs to get to their own store to steal the equipment they need. Once everyone has arrived at their stores, the theft occurs and then they all need to exit the mall before time runs out in order for the players to win. Magic Maze has a couple of twists. Each player is responsible for a different set of actions. I might be able to move left and use escalators. The person next to me might be able to move down and explore new tiles, and so on. So with four or fewer players, there will often be times when you're the only person who can fix a particular situation, because you're the only one who has that directional move. You can play with up to eight players, and from five on up, you start duplicating actions. For most of the game, players are not allowed to talk. If you need someone else to notice that they need to move a pawn, the most you can do is take this big red do something pawn and place it in front of them to alert them. You can't tell them what they need to do, which can be both a pro and a con in different ways. It keeps everyone involved in a meaningful way and prevents so-called alpha players from solving the puzzle ahead of other players. On the other hand, if the person doesn't notice what they need to do, or if the players have their wires crossed and have too many different ideas, it can hold the group back. One thing you can do in this situation is move one of the pawns to one of the red hourglass symbols on one of the tiles. This allows you to flip the sand timer to get more time. The closer you are to running out of sand when you flip it, the more time you'll gain. Once the sand timer is flipped, you can talk about the game as long as you want, but only while the sand is running and not during any actions. The group can discuss what needs to happen and then resume silently moving around the pawns. You do have to place an X on the hourglass symbol when you use it, so you can't just play for an unlimited amount of time. I like the controlled amount of discussion that the game allows you to do. It's a great chance to regroup and establish what needs to happen next. Getting everybody on the same page is crucial in Magic Maze. Of course, this limited amount of talking is not going to be enough to suit everyone's tastes. Not being able to talk is a deal breaker for some people, and it can be more difficult to get newer players into the flow of the game when you can't assist them. Some players, regardless of whether they are beginners, may come away from the experience frustrated, either from their own perspective or regarding other players. It can also be tricky to visually parse the layout of the mall setting when you're in a time crunch. I've thought about taking a sharpie to my copy to make the stores more distinct at a glance. I found that the key to enjoying Magic Maze to its full potential is to have a solid group, ideally two players or four players, that is willing to play multiple times over different sessions and work on getting better. That's because Magic Maze gives you a whole series of gradually changing rule sets to play through. For example, in your first game, everyone goes out the same exit at the end. In your second game, each character has their own exit, and so on. At the end of Scenario 7, the rulebook actually says, you now know all the rules of Magic Maze, as if previous games were incomplete. Then it goes on to provide 10 variants on the next page. They're not all equally interesting, but you can try out a few to get even more out of the base game before trying the expansion, which is called Maximum Security. Magic Maze has the same element of tension that makes other real-time games tick, but it has its own unique characteristics that set it apart from others in its category. The game is designed by Casper Lapp. The art is by Jiom and is published by Sit Down. 
I'm Christy, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at D6CMarie. Captain's Log, Stardate 2019.4 In Star Trek Panic, players attempt to complete five missions, each with different objectives and parameters, while keeping the USS Enterprise intact. You'll work together to fend off a barrage of enemy threats and alien encounters. Designed by Jessen DeWitt and published by Fireside Games and USAopoly in 2016, Star Trek Panic is a cooperative game for 1-6 players set in the Star Trek original series universe. You and your fellow crew members take on the roles of classic Star Trek characters, from Captain Kirk to First Officer Spock, each with their own special ability that may be used on their turn. Turns consist of drawing cards, trading cards with other players, playing cards to fire at enemy ships, maneuvering the Enterprise, then checking to see if the current mission has been completed. Enemies then move and fire on the Enterprise before two more threats appear on the board. Threats come in the form of Klingon, Romulan, and Tholian ships, along with comets and cloaking ships. While the Enterprise is equipped with shields to sustain damage, you'll likely lose parts of your vessel during the game. You must have at least one section intact to emerge victorious. Take too many hits, and you'll have more trouble than a ship full of tribbles. With smart card play and deft maneuvering, you'll be able to complete your missions, finish off the remaining threats, and warp away for the win. One of the first games I bought when I discovered the board game hobby was Castle Panic. It was a fun, cooperative tower defense game set in the generic fantasy world of orcs, goblins, and ogres. It was a big hit with my niece and nephew, but as they grew up, the game rarely made it to the table, and I eventually traded it away. When I came across Star Trek Panic, I thought it'd be more of the same, only with a Star Trek theme pasted on. Would the game improve on the original, resulting in a classic like City on the Edge of Forever? Or would it fizzle out like Spock's brain? From the moment I opened the Star Trek Panic box and put together the USS Enterprise NCC-1701, I was immediately transported to my childhood when I watched episodes on my family's color TV. Photos from the original series are used on most of the cards, and all of the icons evoke the classic 60s sci-fi series. Even the mission cards feature the original photos and give the general feel of an episode. For example, the Space Seed mission has Ricardo Montalban as Khan, while the Deadly Years mission has an old-looking Dr. McCoy. Accordingly, the Deadly Years mission prohibits players from using their special ability until the mission has been completed. Some mission objectives require committing specific credits to complete it, from engineering to science, which are icons on each card. It leads to interesting decisions. Do you use a card to attack or defend immediately, or do you commit the card and its icon for the current mission, thus taking it out of play? It's a nice touch for hand management and set collection that ramps up the difficulty. Things can go south quickly if you're not working together as a team, which fits the theme neatly. Sure, the original Enterprise never encountered this many enemies at once, but it does deliver a whole lot of tension from start to finish in the form of threats constantly being hurled at the Enterprise. Like the classic Castle Panic game, enemies and threats are tokens drawn from a bag every turn, with the same roll a die and move the bad guys toward you mechanism. Adding the ability to maneuver the Enterprise was an inspired design choice. Unlike the static castle in the original, the Enterprise can be positioned to take less damage or move closer to a friendly starbase. Some of the missions will have you maneuvering the Enterprise to a specific location. It's a welcome spatial addition to gameplay, one that's easy to learn, yet provides another challenge. 
I love the cloaking ability of some Klingon and Romulan ships. They cannot be hit when cloaked, and when they decloak, they randomly move to another sector. Again, it's a cool thematic touch that increases the difficulty of the game. The only negative of Star Trek Panic is its 90-minute playtime for a standard 5-mission game. This should have been a 1-hour game, but I'm sure most Trekkies won't mind an extra half-hour spent battling Klingons and other baddies. You could always set a 3-mission objective for a shorter, although easier, game. While non-fans might not be as excited about Star Trek Panic as crew members exposed to spores from Omicron SETI 3, even they can boldly go where other Trekkies have gone before. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. In 2011, the author Cat Falls wrote a young adult book called Dark Life. In it, the main characters live in domes anchored to the ocean floor, wear amazing suits that pull oxygen out of the surrounding water, and rarely visit the surface for any reason. In this dystopian world, global climate change has raised ocean levels to such an extent that the remaining land is overwhelmed, forcing many people to live and farm the new frontier of the world's vast oceans. When I first punched my copy of Underwater Cities, I was excited to recognize the thrilling world of dark life. In this game, scientists have been sent to the ocean floor to develop the best and most livable underwater colonies to solve the massive overpopulation issues the world is facing. In it, you will get to build habitation domes, connect them with tunnels, and populate them with the machinery to support human survival. This clever game for one to four players, designed by Vladimir Suchi and illustrated by Milan Vavron, delivers solid midway Euro gameplay and gives you the additional satisfaction of building your own little underwater city. The goal of the game is to amass the most victory points, which are collected predominantly when your connected domes produce resources and points after each era and at the end of the game, where all of the work you did to build livable habitats will turn into points. In the 10 rounds of Underwater Cities, you will combine the placement of a worker with the playing of a card from the hand of cards that you are managing. Workers placed on action spaces always trigger, providing ways to gain resources and expand your colony. Cards in placement spaces are color-coded, and when you are able to match the action color to the card you play, it will trigger an additional reward or ongoing benefit that you might be able to exploit later on. There are three kinds of factories you can build next to your domes. Desalinization plants produce income and biomass. Laboratories produce science and steel plast. And kelp farms make kelp and victory points. If you upgrade and pair these structures, they are worth much more. You have a lot of freedom to decide what, how, and when you build these things. The decisions you make come to fruition at the end of each era where the points, cash, and various resources you produce help you to continue to build your habitat. There's a tantalizing strategy to all of this. What do you build to produce the things you need to create the engine that will win? The more you play, the more ambitious you get with your goals, saying to yourself, Hey self, if I can get all this X built before the end of the first era, then I can really get Y done. This is the kind of engine building that will have you pressing your luck to accomplish great things with never enough time and or resources. On top of your own goals, the game also offers multiple incentives to move in strategic directions that you might not have considered before. There are three goal cards that change game to game, giving bonuses for the first to meet specific requirements. There are also three hexagonal tiles on your board that if you connect them up to your tunnel network will give you in-game and or end-game benefits. Looming over each game is a unique set of special cards that provide 
large endgame points, but only for the player who acquires that card and achieves the card's requirement. Variability is a spice of life for midweight euros and is what makes Underwater City so massively replayable. The components in this game are worth talking about. The red and white semi-translucent domes read perfectly on the board. I think this is one game where plastic was a great choice, and while I would love to see a wood, metal, resin version where the resources have the gravitas of the domes, I think the choices that were made were just right. My one literally tiny issue with underwater cities is the minuscule discs that represent your farms, plants, and laboratories. They can get a tad fiddly, especially when stacking them, but everything works so delightfully on your player boards, and if components were even larger, the game would be pushing the constraints of the average dining room table. An unavoidable issue for certain. If you have large paws and are bothered by the dexterity required for stacking tiny discs, this is an issue to consider. There's an argument I see online where some feel like a strong kelp farming strategy is the key to success in this game. Perhaps this is a bigger issue at higher player counts, or perhaps this is mostly an issue for new players who don't value kelp and let one player monopolize these spaces. I haven't seen this issue play out firsthand as my husband and I are very likely to build multiple double upgraded kelp farms during the game because kelp farming is so helpful. We have won the game pursuing many different strategies. I should mention that though I have played Underwater Cities nine times now, I have played exclusively two players. I witnessed higher player count games that have exceeded the patience of the players in game length and weight between turns. I highly recommend the two-player experience. It's snappy. This game could have been a great disappointment to me as worker placement games can feel repetitive, boring, or like my choices don't really matter. Luckily, Underwater Cities layers complex decisions onto the worker placement framework that guarantees interesting gameplay. And even when you lose, you have this lovely world you built to enjoy. If you want to share your favorite book and board game pairings with me, you can find me at Kybrarian on Twitter or Cat Library on BGG. You've been listening to The Five By, the fast and friendly podcast by people who love board games. You can follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5bygames. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or visit our website at 5bygames.com. From all of us at The 5 By, thanks for listening. The 5 By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.